Hey everyone, what's going on out there? Welcome back to ScreenSpeak. The podcast is all about movies, life, and so much more. I'm Jordan Anderson, this is my podcast, and as always, I appreciate you coming by to listen and to show your support to the world of movies, art, entertainment, and of course this podcast. Haven't shown support for this podcast yet, or this happens to be your first time here, it's not a problem. All I need you to do is to hit the follow button on whatever it is that you're listening to this on, and if you got the time, you can head on over to Instagram and connect with me right there. Lastly, I always want to remind you all that getting a hold of me through email is always an option to you. So whether you have some feedback for the show, you have a question, maybe you want to be a guest or you know someone that's interested in being a guest, you can let me know all that information right there or just by sending me a direct message on Instagram. All that information, including information on the filmmaker that I got on this episode with me, can all be found on this episode's description in the, of course, description. So definitely check out all of that before you exit your preferred podcasting app. Okay, believe that's all the plugs. The plugs have been plugged. On with the episode. Now, before I introduce my latest guest, I thought I would take a moment here just to air out some thoughts I had on the holiday of Thanksgiving that just passed us by. Uh, You know, check in with you a little bit, see if yours was good, and just kind of go from there. So starting with that, was your Thanksgiving good? Was it a good holiday? Was it fun? Did you get enough to eat? Did you hardly eat a thing at all? I can tell you all for myself that I'm not one that goes very big for Thanksgiving. Might be a surprise to people, but it is the plain truth. Truthfully, Thanksgiving is probably one of my least favorite holidays in the world, and I think it is largely because of the food that is served at the majority of them that I have attended. Now, before you rage out over that statement saying that I don't like the food at Thanksgiving, give me a moment to explain, or should I say, defend myself. It's always wild to me that a person even needs to explain or defend themselves over a difference in food, a difference in food preference you know, preference really, that a person or an individual can have that really has no effect whatsoever on the other person that chooses to throw shade at somebody just because they don't indulge in your typical Thanksgiving food. I can never understand that. I, I, I honest to God can't. But what I'm trying to say here is that Thanksgiving is not a favorite holiday of mine, largely because the vast majority of people's insistence upon having homestyle food be the main course served for the big meal. Now, when I say homestyle food, I'm of course referring to the food that we all know, the food that is typically associated with this big day. You got your turkey, your stuffing, your potatoes, casseroles, pies, etc., etc. And to be clear, it's not like I don't like any of that. I'll definitely go for some turkey and some pumpkin pie, but, but outside of that, that's about it. And if you dare make the suggestion that a Thanksgiving should, God forbid, include anything else that is not quote-unquote traditional say something like tacos, pizza, Chinese food, Italian food, etc. Well, that means you're being sacrilege and you're not for the holiday. In fact, you're anti-holiday. You don't like Thanksgiving. You're just trying to ruin everybody's good time. That's at least the sentiment, it seems, that the majority of people I've come across personally have expressed to me when I've dared mention that we have anything outside of the home-style food. Not everyone in the world, because I don't like to generalize everything, especially when I'm talking about this, Uh, But it has certainly happened a fair few times. Now, I should tell you that a part of me does get the pushback with the food on here. I mean, I I do. I I really do. Thanksgiving seems to be one of those holidays that is always steeped and rooted in traditional values and customs, certainly all built around food. So I can see that someone that maybe shares more traditional values thinks that you're not respecting the holiday and its customs if you don't go for the traditional home-style food that we see in many of those old-timey photos of Thanksgiving. But... What I always say to this is this, 
Isn't the main point or purpose of Thanksgiving simply to come together with your family and friends, share a good meal together, and count your blessings? I mean, at the end of the day, the bottom line, is that not the main point of the holiday? Forget all the stuff with the pilgrims in Columbus. I'm not trying to totally dismiss the history that's there and its significance to the holiday, but if we're looking at brass tacks here, most people could care less about the historical elements and simply see the time as time that's being well spent with the people you love, cherish, and value, coming together around food, and feeling deep notions of being grateful for the many blessings that we have. So, all that being said, I hardly think that the type of food that you eat during the day should be such a major factor in this holiday. Eat bowls of ramen noodles for all I care. I really could care less. The food style in the grand scheme of things should not hold such weight over the holidays. So my message to anyone listening to this that may be like myself but doesn't want the headache of voicing their indifference to the masses' expectations of food on that day, I say this to you. Eat what you want. Period. Don't let the masses deter you or make you feel like an outsider if you choose not to indulge in the typical home-style food that they have at the table and are expecting you to eat. You eat what you want if it makes you happy. Believe me, there's enough conformists out there in the world that'll go right ahead and follow suit with eating the typical Thanksgiving food. They can afford to lose a few from the mix and not even pay notice to it. The hell with them. Long as you're grateful for what you got and you're spending the time well with others, you're doing the holiday right in my book. <sighs> Didn't expect to air all that out, but I guess it needed to be said. Most I come across that feel the way I do on this, I think they typically stay quiet because they don't want to look different to those that are around them or to upset the herd. Well, I'm here for you. I'm here for all the silent ones around this holiday that are thinking this, they're feeling this, but they don't actually say it. I got you. You know who else I got? I got Michael Menard, the writer and director of the film that we're talking about today called You Shoulda Killed Me. Smooth segue, right? <laughs> so You Should Have Killed Me is an independent film that was shot largely in the Cedar Falls, Waterloo, Iowa area. It's a crime, action, and drama film that's all about a man that's involved in organized crime that has something happen to him that turns his world upside down. The event, in a nutshell, is him getting screwed over by his fellow gangsters and getting left for dead. And then it turns into one of those classic revenge stories about a man that's on a mission to get his revenge before the time runs out. Michael has screened the movie in local film fests here in Iowa in the past year and has garnered several independent film festival awards for the work. It's his first feature film, but not his first foray into the world of movies and entertainment. By day, Michael works in commercial videography, has made several shorts, and is also a husband and a father. He's educated in digital mass media and is not the type to be afraid to get his hands dirty to see a creative job all the way through. Whether it be operating cameras, working sound design, and directing film crews, the man wears a lot of hats and has a ton of passion for the filmmaking industry. And also, I must say, for films being made in the state of Iowa, getting the proper eyes, ears, and notoriety to them that they deserve. It's also pretty cool for this movie that he was able to secure mass distribution for the film itself, which is really not an easy thing to do when you're working on a shoestring budget like he had to work on for this, plus factoring in that this is his first feature film. That being said, I'm happy to share with you all that you can watch this film on Amazon, Vudu, and the one format that I would personally recommend to each of you to watch this film on is Blu-ray otherwise known as physical media. All the links to watch it, however you choose to do so, are in the description of this episode. So again, please check out all that information I got packed into the description of this episode before you finish listening to the episode. Michael's a very interesting and uniquely spoken individual. I had met him briefly before we recorded the podcast, but for no more than, say, like a minute or two. 
So I really didn't know him well at all before we spoke. And I admit that when I first met him, I did find his energy to be kind of intimidating. He's got a real solid amount of confidence and this just no bullshit direct way about him, if, if that makes any sense. So going into this, I really wasn't sure what kind of a conversation we were going to have, but over the course of it, I found him to be pretty easy to chat with. He's got a dry sense of humor that I found enjoyable. And overall, he's just interesting as far as a human being goes. You can tell he feels strongly about things and cares very much about the world of movies and local representation in it, specifically here in the state of Iowa. Outside of talking about his film and filmmaking in Iowa, we do bounce around some thoughts on more mainstream fare like The Patriot, Armageddon, The Fablemans, and even the Avatar films. It's, it's really solid stuff all around in this chat. Sincerely hope you all enjoy this conversation and come back for more episodes in the future. I got a lot of good content left to give you before this year is up, and there's plenty more to come in 2024. And if you follow me on social media, I do want to throw in a quick plug for this. I did announce that if you're in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa area, on December 6th, I'll be attending the Marcus Theater screening of James Cameron's 4K remastering of The Abyss. It is a one-night-only event on December 6th at 6 p.m. You can get tickets on Marcus's website, or you can do it on Fandango, or wherever you get your movie tickets, but it's a one-night-only event. I will be there, and hopefully we'll be able to stick around afterwards, maybe bump into a couple of listeners and talk about our thoughts on the movie and just have a good time. So again, head over to social media to learn more about that. Look in this episode's description to learn more about Michael, as well as how to get a hold of this podcast, and that is it. All right, that's all I got. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Here's my conversation with writer and director Michael Menard. Yeah, I want start. everyone to know I'm here against my will, uh, Jordan. Wow kidnapped me for this podcast I was yeah i mean i'd be curious how i actually got got around to doing that because to be honest i'm not a gun guy I'm not so it'd probably be like a like knife point maybe something like that knives are scarier than guns at least guns are quick actually i i would agree with you on that because weirdly enough talking about knives knives are something where like you know a person can like wave like a, like an empty gun around as long you know so if i know it's empty like i'll be like yeah i'm nervous and stuff because you're waving a gun around but if somebody's waving a knife near my vicinity it, it, it gets me like on edge like I, I really do not like that yeah no i mean i completely agree uh but i mean before i got into my filmmaking career back when i was in high school and whatever i think just like every other high school kid i worked a bunch of kitchen jobs right Yep. And uh, I remember I had this manager that was like, I don't care if you burn me, like there's hot equipment everywhere. But like, if you cut me, I'm going to ruin your day. Yeah. Like, knives are scary, man. They you sure know, are. They're a lot more intimate than the average person thinks. So. <laughs> so I wanted to start off the conversation, man. I'm just, you know, kind of give an audience a sense of who you are and whatnot. If you want to go ahead and, you know, just like, you know, share, share your name, where you're from, your background, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Michael James Minard. Um, last name looks like Minard or Minard. I wasn't or, actually uh, sure how to pronounce it. How, however you want to pronounce it. So I'm saving, <laughs> I'm saving Jordan a, a misstep here. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's pronounced like I'm your nerd. Like, hey, he's not your nerd. He's my nerd. So that's, that's a good one. I, I like that. That's how you nice. pronounce it. Um, 
I grew up in a really tiny town <clears throat> called Reedland, Iowa, which is 20 minutes northeast of Waterloo. But Waterloo is my home now. Uh, that's where my wife and two kids live. And uh, yeah, um, pretty much been a, a, a Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Cedar Valley in my entire life. So. And it seems from just the, the limited research I did on yourself, you work in commercial videography as well. Yeah. So right now, uh, I mean, I, I know the listeners can't see this here, but uh, I'm actually sure. in my office at KWWL. Uh, so I work for Channel 7. Uh, I'm their commercial videographer, one of two, uh, myself and uh, a uh, distinguished gentleman of his own, <laughs> Tyler Ritchie, who is also a very uh, um, prevalent filmmaker in the area. Um, he... Uh, he and I are the two videographers here. And uh, yeah, actually, uh, big news. This is kind mm. of a world reveal for whoever didn't see it. Um, Tyler and I were actually, we actually won our first Emmy uh, over this weekend. Really? A uh, PSA that we did for the Waterloo Youth City Council. So. Hey, congratulations, man. That's a big deal. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about it. I, uh, like I've won <clears throat> countless awards, uh, you know, with, um, you know, various film festivals and things like that. But actually, mm-hmm. winning an, an Emmy was kind of a, a different set of nerves I haven't felt before. So. Uh, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, because you know, the Emmys are something where I mean, most anybody you ask has heard of them, right? Yeah. You know, whereas like the local film scene, especially here in Iowa, you know, it's not like a Cannes or a Sundance and whatnot. It's a very very select crowd, you know, tend to be the people that really get that stuff the most. Uh, but the Emmys, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. Where, where was it at? Uh, so it's the, the upper Midwest Emmys. So like, I didn't know this until I even got nominated for one last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Emmys are like a regional thing. So like everyone yes. knows like <clears> the, <throat> like the, you know, California, LA Emmys, things like yep. that. Um, but like the Emmys are everywhere. So like, I mean, in the United States, like we, we won an Emmy for the upper Midwest Emmys. Uh, but then there's like a lower Midwest Emmys and there's right. like an East coast, mid, like, you know, Emmys, you know, things like that. Um, uh, so like it is an Emmy, the award looks the same, uh, yep. you know, that you would see on like TV if someone, you know, from LA mm-hmm. won it. Um, but it's just our region. Like we won it in our region. So. Is there a lot of people at the ceremony itself? Oh, yeah. It's it's like a big red carpet thing. Uh, I didn't go this year, and I also didn't go last year when I got nominated, uh, mm. mostly because of family stuff with just kids, and yep. it's hard to convince the wife to sneak away for a weekend with, uh, you know, two one, young ones at home. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was – yeah, it was – it was very surreal. Uh, speaking of young ones, um, this is kind of how I found out about it. So I, I had sent the, the YouTube link earlier to my coworker that day and um, kind of told him, like, you know, hey, here's the link to the Emmys. Here's how you watch. Uh, and I kind of forgot all about it. And then I was putting my daughter to bed, and it was about 730 at night. No, well, actually, regardless of time, it was like 738 o'clock at night put my daughter to bed she's kind of like halfway asleep next to me and i'm laying in bed with her and she has like a little twin mattress thing mm-hmm. and uh i had the phone next to my ear and i was kind of listening to you know what was going on and all of a sudden i heard him say like now is the time for your public service announcement <laughs> nominees you know whatever so i was yeah. like oh that's us 
Yeah. So like I look at my phone and I'm watching and goes through the the three nominees total, uh, including us. Uh, and then at the end, it says that we're the winner. And I literally sat up in my daughter's bed and I was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and she woke up and she was like, what, what, what? I had no idea what was going on. I picked her up. We started dancing around the bedroom. And yeah, it was, oh my a, gosh. It was a pretty fun moment, at least between me and my daughter. So. I mean, it's pretty surreal, though, too. I mean, because still, I mean, that that's that's one of those awards you're going to remember because th- there's film festival awards, you know, and like you said, as the as the tears kind of go up, you know, there there is a sense of nerves about it. I, I think anybody would be lying, even if they say like, oh, I don't really care about awards that much. Like, bullshit. It's an Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of in the point now where it's like, is this going to be my peak or is this going to be like. No. The way I look at it, where it's like the only way to look is up from here. You know, now next we get a Golden Globe, next we get a yeah. you know an Oscar or something. So, well, we're definitely going to get into that because I'm curious where you'll end up kind of going from here and whatnot. But before we get to that point, um, just kind of staying in the past a little bit, but like your education and your background, I I think I saw that like you studied like digital media in college and whatnot. I mean, that would make sense because of the work that you're doing right now. But what I'm curious about is just where does the passion that you have for movies come into it or has it always been there? And like you just kind of get into commercial business to, you know, essentially pay pay the bills basically until you can, you know, become a an artur or however you view yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so I'll do the long story <laughs> short because. Uh, um, yeah, this is kind of get brought up a lot. I'm sure. Uh, so, so I think the filmmaking aspect of like my childhood was always there. You know, I was a stereotypical kid that was, you know, reenacting movie scenes with like GI Joes, things like that. That evolved into like my middle school years, where like I was chasing my friends around with like my parents' VHS camera, you know, doing stupid stuff, you know whether it be like jackass related stuff or whether it be like actually us putting together a script, which happened a few times, you know, it was like that filmmaking aspect was always there. But like, if you would have asked me at that time, like, Hey, you, you know, you want, you want to be a filmmaker. I would have been like, I, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. It, it's just like, it wasn't even on my radar. Uh, and then where, when it really took off so fast forward, um, I, I, I was a metal musician throughout high school and then, you know, to college the first time around. Ended up getting signed to a, a record label. I've been to, signed to two record labels uh, my entire life, but I was a metal musician, so I was playing music. And with that came a lot of, um, like, issues. And I, I don't necessarily mean issues, but it was like, you know, we got signed, we have this record label, we're touring, we're doing all this stuff, but it's like, you know, what are we going to do about a music video? What are we going to do about album? Right. What are we going to do about this stuff? So since we didn't have any money to pay anyone, it was just kind of like, well, I think I can probably make album artwork or I think I can probably, you know, shoot a music video. So then I started shooting music videos for my band. Hmm. Uh, And then after a while, it just was like, I don't want to make music videos anymore. I want to make movies. And uh, I just happened to be uh, a veteran. So I had my GI Bill. And so I used my GI Bill to, to go to Hawkeye Community College, and I was in the digital mass media program. Okay. So the ironic part is, right, so wh- when I was in Hawkeye, it was 2019, it was right before COVID, um, and my instructor was like, you should apply at KWWL, which is where I work now. And I was like, 
get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to make movies. I'm not right. going to be caught dead <clears throat> working at a, a news station. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to work at right. a news station. <clears throat> so then COVID happens, and I graduate, and, like, no one's hiring because of COVID. Yep. And the first job I had out of college was actually for a real estate company where they just needed a drone pilot to get shots of their properties and things like that. Hmm. Um, so I started doing that. And then because of a college professor who taught at Hawkeye and then also worked at KWWL part-time, uh, he had said, hey, if you need a good videographer, you should hire Michael. Hmm. So then not wanting to do real estate anymore, um, I got a job here at KWWL, which is kind of where it brings us up to president. Because uh, initially it was kind of like I had that mentality of like, I'm a filmmaker. I don't want to work for a news station. I don't want right. to make commercials. I'm a filmmaker, blah, 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 blah. And now mm -hmm. it's like, I'm a commercial videographer. And because I'm a commercial videographer, <laughs> they pay me enough money and give me vacation time to make movies. So it's like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing that you bring up where, you know, I've I've been there before myself under different circumstances where you're trying to, you know, sort of accept the identity that you have at the time. Like, you know, like you see yourself in a very specific way, but life is kind of giving you a different set of cards that's not allowing you to be, you know, how you really totally see yourself professionally in order to get paid for it. I mean, like it's a. That's a tough spot to be in, especially as a creative, no, too, because, you know, you, you got strong opinions on it, so. Yeah, I completely agree. It took me the <laughs> longest time to even start, like, telling people I was a filmmaker. Uh, it, and, like, was I, it just, I mean, like, why? Like, just, like. Like, I don't know if it was, like, partially because of, like, imposter syndrome or, mm. like, I didn't necessarily feel like it yet, but, like. Like, so, like, the first ever short film I did uh, won a few awards. It was called All Roads End. Uh, the next short film I did was, like, my biggest success yet. It won, like, over 23 awards, like, by itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, like, I think in that time it was just kind of like, you know, I've made two award-winning short films. Like, you know, I've done interviews. I've done podcasts. I have an IMDb page. You know, like, all this stuff. Right. Um, and so then it was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like at the time, you know, when I wasn't working for KWWL because both those films had come out before then. It was kind of like one of those things where it was like, do I say like, hey, I work in videography or, hey, I do videography for a real estate company or do I actually tell people like, hey, I'm a filmmaker. Mm. And so it took me the longest time to actually be like, hey, I'm a filmmaker. Like, that's what I do. That's who I am. Right. And um, yeah, it was like it was just it, it, like I, I almost it was almost one of those things where it's like you almost had to say it enough for it to make sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember actually having that internal conflict in my head, almost like what you just said, where it was like, yeah. you know, how many times do you have to call yourself a filmmaker before you believe it? And for me, it was quite a bit. So. Well, and, you know, something that makes me think about and, and this is something I've talked with numerous people about maybe on the podcast possibly if i go back and listen to some episodes but mostly in private life uh the word career is, is something that i always kind of struggle with sometimes to be honest because 
especially like if you're in the realm of creativity. I mean, if you work in videography, I don't have to tell you there's a lot of different nuances and complexities just to being able to do that. Certainly in the movie making business, there's a ton of different avenues and approaches that you can do to, to make that happen. So it's like, it's, it's difficult for me sometimes to be able to just say like, I am this one thing and that's what defines me is by just that. That's who I am. It's like, I don't know. Per, a person is made up of so much more than just that. So, I mean, a person, I think in your case, they can be a commercial videographer. They can be a filmmaker. You can be a father. You can be a husband. Like, you know, you can be multiple things without just having to be refined to one thing. I think that's something that um, there's just a lot of people in society that just like try to bottleneck people into those into those things. And I, I just don't think it's healthy. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and I, I would like to think that being good at one makes me better at the other. Um, mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a fairly good, you know, filmmaker, commercial filmmaker, but, uh, I hope being good, you know, like I said, makes me better at the other. I, I'd like to think that I'm an even better dad, I'm either yeah. better husband and, and things like that. Um, and like, it all goes hand in hand, like, um. You know, obviously everyone's a little bit different, but for me, I've noticed that, like, you know, the better I get at videography and making films and, and things like that, uh, the the more it makes me want to be a better father. Um, mm. You know, like, it's kind of like, you know, winning that Emmy or, you know, having You Should Have Killed Me get picked up for <clears throat> worldwide distribution. Like, those were two big things that happened in my life. And, you know, some people could turn internal and basically be like, this is all me. I'm the greatest. <laughs> right. Uh, but like for me, I thought about it as like, you know, this is a perfect example of like showing my kids, you know, like uh, don't give up on your dreams. Like anything is possible. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whether what whatever your dream is, you know, like um, like I had this like I like I struggle with self-doubt quite a bit. Uh, you know, I. Uh, I always feel like I'm not good enough, you know, kind of like I'm uh, uh, basically a piece of shit, if you will. <laughs> but uh, like someone broke this down to me the other day and uh, I really appreciated them doing this. And like they didn't have to, but, uh, you know, I was kind of just like, man, you know, like I got nominated for an Emmy. You know, I've won this award. My film is picked up. But like, I, you know, I still feel like I want to do something more creative. I don't feel like my entire vision of like you know, what I want my movie career to be has become. And he was just like, dude, you've been signed to two different record labels. Like you used to tour in a metal band. You mm -hmm. have a movie that got picked up for world <clears throat> distribution. Like, you know, you just won an Emmy. He's like, do you know how many <laughs> lifetimes that would take the average person to achieve just one of those? And like, you've already done it. And I was just kind of like, oh yeah, like, I guess you're right. And so like, that's one of those things where like I juggle it a lot, you know, it's just like on one hand, I'm just kind of like, fuck, like I feel like a terrible father. I feel like a terrible filmmaker. I don't feel like mm. I'm doing what I want to do creatively. But then at the same time, I have to remember like you're obviously making the right moves because, you know, someone's noticing that kind of thing. So no, for sure. Um, you know, the, God, there's, there's a lot I could say about that, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to think how, how do I want to put this? Um, it's difficult when you're always hungry, 
right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're and hungry that's, that's and you're in a nutshell, man. My, my ambition has been my greatest strength and my greatest weakness all at the same time. Like literally you could preach about that to me on that. Cause like, it's like same it's coming, it's coming through the camera. It's coming through the mic because my, my wife actually has to reel me in on that sometimes because no joke, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a filmmaker. I'm a, you know, aspiring podcaster and I have a day job and I got responsibilities just like you, but, um, I can be my own worst critic because I try to really push myself and go out of my comfort zone and, and do different things. And it's like, sometimes you just get so obsessed with the work that like, you just don't take that second to to pull back and just kind of look at where you're at. Um, yeah. it, it's difficult because as you said, and I'm glad you pointed it out, the, the side of yourself that pushes you, whether you attribute that to ambition, to hard work, whatever you want to call that, that is also what separates you from the other people that aren't going to put in the work to to get to that place. You know, it, it, it sometimes can be difficult to balance the two, because if you go too lax on yourself, well, then you're not going to challenge you. Does that make sense? No, no, absolutely. Like it, it like, honestly, it's a sickness, man. Um, Probably. Like I, I, I live, <laughs> like I live and breathe filmmaking, like 100 mm-hmm. percent. Like I'll wake up in the morning, drop my kids off and I'll be walking in the quick start. And then all of a sudden I'll have the thought of if there is a camera behind me dollying right now, like how would I film my walk the way I'm walking, <laughs> like the best way, you know, like it's, yeah. it's just little things like that, you know? And it's like, um, like when I call this sickness, man, like I live and breathe filmmaking. When I watch other films, I'm not actually watching the film. I'm, I'm I was going to ask like, you that. Yeah, I'm I'm going like, ooh, that's a good use of natural light, or ooh, hey, they used a little <laughs> bit of fill on her face, or ooh, hey, uh, that camera movement means this, like this is about to happen, like, um, like obviously I enjoy good storytelling and I enjoy sure. movies and I still enjoy <clears throat> movies, but it's it's wild, man. Um, can you still enjoy movies, you know, when you're looking at it from like that critical lens or just that lens of I'm a person that knows what work goes on behind that? I mean, can you still suspend that yeah, and enjoy it's, the story? It's kind of, well, because it's kind of a, a mix between two things, you know, like you you have the aspect as a filmmaker of like, you know, if you see something that's not good, you have a little bit of an understanding where like you understand how much mm-hmm. was put into that film. Right. So, like, if something's not good, you're kind of like, I get it, man. The struggle's real. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it may be, something happened that day. Uh, but then also at the same time, you also have that mindset where it's like, if it's not good, you're like, well, then it's not a good film. Like, either it didn't capture me story-wise, you know, it wasn't shot correctly. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like a, like, there's so many times where my wife gets so aggravated with me. <laughs> be watching like one of her TV shows, like um, <clears throat> like she's big into like Chicago Med, Grey's Anatomy, things like that. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. What's the when she started? New Amsterdam, right? Okay. She starts watching that, and like it'll be this beautifully lit shot scene, everything like that, and then it'll cut to like obviously a guy hand holding a camera, <laughs> yeah. and it's just shaky as fuck. And I'm like, one, <laughs> why would you cut to that? Like, if you already had it in another shot. And it's like, two, you spend thousands of dollars on this fucking film and you can't get a stabilizer mm. for your camera. Like, what What are you doing? Yeah. 
That's so like so it kind of goes like hand in hand, right? You know, it's like. But that's a, like, but that's an interesting point though, because if if you're noticing, you know, a shot in a show like Grey's Anatomy where there's like a shit dump cut edit or there's some you know bad camera work that's happening behind the scenes and whatnot. I mean, you know for sure a show like that that's been on, you know, for eons like that one has. It's got the budget. It clearly yeah. has a viewership. And like, and don't get me wrong. I am not perfect. You watched. Right. You should have killed me. You should have killed me. By all means, is not a perfect movie. It's far right. from it. Right. But at the same time, it's like, like I said earlier, kind of. I don't know where you're going to cut the podcast. It's like you know, we spent five grand making that movie, and I mean. Yeah. Uh, and no fault to anyone else. There was a lot of things as a first time feature filmmaker that I didn't even think of shooting or including. Yeah, and that's on me. And like we had to troubleshoot and get over it. Uh, but it's like, you know, when you probably have what, you know, two hundred thousand dollars per episode, it's like you would think that you could at least hire a steady cam operator. I'm just I'm just saying I'm just. Yeah. Saying. No, and, and, and that's and but that's the point though, right? Because if you're working on as tight of a budget like that, which in the in the scheme of film, like sometimes I'll I'll hear I'll hear people uh, in the podcast community like they might talk about independent films and they'll maybe talk about something that's put out by A twenty four or whatnot, and they'll be like, It had a really low budget of like twenty million. Now I get it. Like in the grand scheme like, of movies, like in the yes, grand twenty scheme million of movies, is not much. Twenty but... million would probably fund every single <laughs> film I would make the rest of my life. Right, and that, and yeah. that's exactly the point. It's like you're able to still put an entire feature length film together with all the actors and whatnot, but then you see somebody that's probably paid a little too well to get by with a job that is frankly not that good and you know it could be with the money they're spending on it so that is a pain point i never really have thought about that yeah shit no but okay. I, I i relate to you with like i said it, it it truly is a sickness you know like um yeah kind of going back to the the, the self-doubt thing or just like not really taking a step back to like really see who you are because uh, where you do know. you get your where do you get your validation from I mean, or do you even need it? Because sometimes, I, like, people, honestly, yeah. like, honestly, I don't. And uh, I don't want to throw my wife under the bus necessarily. Yeah, uh, don't do that. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, in a sense, hear me out. Okay. Uh, like, she does not listen to my podcast. She does not care about my movies. Um, the only movie I think she's ever seen of mine is my feature-length film because she came to a, um, a film festival with me. Um, she does not care about my movie career whatsoever. She wants to know that I can make enough money to take care of the family and that as long as my dreams and ambitions don't get in the way of providing for the family, then, like, I'm good to go. Now, yeah. some would say, like, well, your wife's kind of shitty. And I would argue, like, yes, you could take it that way. But, like, my wife does things that, like, is kind of unspoken, like, right now. She's home watching both the kids, which means she has to do bedtime by herself. And she's doing all of that so, like, I can be here. Right. So, in a way, like, I don't get validation necessarily from her or from, like, any one individual. Mm -hmm. It's more so, like I said, it's more, like, it's more so, like, the need to just want to create, right? Yeah. So, like... Like I said, I, well, I mean, okay, like I said, going back to being transparent. So, like, Tyler and I won an Emmy last weekend. The first yeah. conversation that we had on Monday is, like, 
how can we step up our game? And the reason why is because we got nominated for a commercial that we did almost a year ago, and we had been kind of doing that formula every Mm -hmm. single day for the following year, and we were both getting sick of it. It was just monotonous. It was just like, hey, you have a business. Let us show up. Let us do some sexy shots of your products, and then we'll leave, and we'll put a commercial together. Mm -hmm. So even though we won an Emmy for it, now it was like, well, you know, we didn't we didn't work very hard on that commercial, right? And but so once again, kind of imposter syndrome seeking in there. So then it was like, okay, well now what do we do to make a commercial that we actually feel like we earned it? You know, like mm-hmm. so then it was kind of like, okay, well now we need to do this. Now we need to come up with original ideas. Now we need to do this. Now we need to be better pitching ideas. Now we need to get you know better equipment. Now we need to get more people involved, and. Like, I think the going back to like the validation thing is like, I don't think I've ever felt necessarily real validation where like I've been able to like lay down in bed at the end of the night and be like, oh, <laughs> I am so good at filmmaking. Like, I don't think that's ever happened. It's yeah. more so where it's like, as soon as I get done making a film, that sickness once again takes over and it's like, hey, you should do another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey you should do this you should do another one you should do this and like it just is never ending so it's like yeah. you know even if i was mm-hmm. like i'm never gonna make another feature length film ever again yeah well odds are i'd be in my car i'd be driving to work or something and a song would come on the radio and then that song would be yeah. like this movie scene and then that movie scene would give me an idea or I would be listening to like a film score and then that film score would give me an idea for a scene and then that scene creeps in. It's just, yeah, Yeah. I mean. You can't escape it, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's it's, everywhere I look is making movies. Well, that's funny too, because I have to imagine if you're anything like me and it sounds like just from the onset of this conversation, we, we got some similarities and I'm not just saying that. Um, I can only imagine that probably when you're making it, like you said, you don't go to bed every night going like, ah, like that was great. You probably stress about it even like while you're making it too, you know, cause like you're, you're insistent on it being as best as it can be for the resources and time and everything that you have at your disposal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, like, I'm, like I said, I'm constantly thinking about film no matter what. Uh, and then if I'm in the process of making a film, it's yeah. because you're either going to bed with like one or two thoughts. It's what can I do tomorrow? <clears throat> you're thinking about everything you fucked up that day before. Yeah. And like there is no in between. So then it's kind of like, you know, like you're having those thoughts. And it's like not only that, but like a lot of people don't understand how actually hard filmmaking is. And I'm not even just talking about like the visual process, but like, yeah, you get off a 12 hour day film set, like your knees hurt, your back hurts. You're mm-hmm. like, you can hardly lift your arms above your head. Like it, it sucks. Like it hurts. <laughs> and this is yeah. a guy that went through <clears throat> like, basic training and spend a year overseas like it sucks it hurts but it's also one of the only jobs where after a 12 to 14 hour day when i lay in bed and i'm sitting there thinking about the next day and i'm like man i cannot wait to wake up four hours and do this shit again you really have to love it I mean, it's, honest, honest to God, that's the that's the only thing that would get you through it. Like, even if you get enough sleep, you know, you get enough food and things like that. Like, nah, 
you, you really have to do that all from a place of love. That's honestly where it comes from. Yeah, no, 100% agree. So for You Should Have Killed Me, I, I did want to ask, um, one of the questions I had just about the actual film is is the tone of it. Mm-hmm. Um, totally, I'm curious what you were going for because, the, you know, you, there's there's certainly, like, you know, some kind of, like, classic gangster stuff that's in there. Uh, you have revenge thriller elements that are there for sure. Then you got, you know, Cheech and Chong or whoever those guys are, the one that's basically, like, <laughs> one of them... Uh, I, I kept thinking, I'm like, man, this guy must have watched a lot of Scooby-Doo and watched a lot of Shaggy to prepare <laughs> for for his part. Um, I Actually, yeah, I have his name down here. What What is it? Uh, Bryce, Taylor. Uh, Bryce Taylor. Yeah, I, 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 I'm just curious. Uh, walk me through the tone of this movie. Um, well, yeah, so so uh, I, I guess once again, long story short. Uh, so you should have killed me tentatively was supposed to be a proof of concept film called the dead man walking. Okay. Um, and I basically what it was for was I, I had already written a feature length film script called dissonance. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wasn't, like I said, I had only done, uh, you know, like five or six shorts. So like I wasn't fully confident that I could handle doing a feature length film. And so I wanted to make a proof of concept. Uh, in that same like genre, things like that, to prove to myself that like, hey, like you're ready for this next step, like you can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I wrote this short called The Dead Man Walking. It was probably about like 25 to 30 pages. Probably would have landed somewhere between 35 and 40 minutes long. And uh, we had a table read, and the cast and crew loved it so much that they were like, hey, fuck your other feature, like let's turn this into a feature length film, you know, where we stand behind you. Let's, you know, let's make it. Right. So it's like, okay. So I added some characters, took some characters out, extended it, wrote some new scenes, things like that. And, uh, up until even when after the film was complete, it was called the dead man walking. And that name didn't change until, uh, we got picked up for distribution through Bayview entertainment where, uh, once again, because I'm a moron and, and <laughs> live under a rock apparently didn't even think that the film dead man walking a very famous film with sean penn that actually yeah, i was several, thinking about that yeah know, several oscars uh, <laughs> me adding the before dead man walking wasn't enough to make it unique so they asked me to change it uh but yeah going back so it was the dead man walking it's just a proof of concept film mm-hmm. um but when I added Ducky and Kevin, which are Dylan Yeager and yep. Bryce Taylor's characters, um, they were actually very heavily influenced by like um, Pineapple Express. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So yes, I did. I did watch like Cheech and Chong, you know, Up in Smoke and things like that. But they were definitely much more <clears throat> influenced by like Seth Rogen and James Franco. Um, mm-hmm. But that whole movie going kind of leading into that that whole movie was just kind of an homage to like my favorite movies mm-hmm. uh, so you know you have ducky and kevin which are like uh you know shout out to pineapple express or cheech and chong or how high or you know whatever <laughs> movie from the 90s you can get into right mm-hmm. uh, but then you have a lot of western elements you know like at one point maddie whalen's character solely you know says like you feeling ducky punks and like when it zooms in on his eyes like you know, that's an homage to, like, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know? Yeah, I did um, catch that. <clears throat> you know, when 
Damien goes to Rudy's Tacos before he approaches Sully and he's, you know, flipping through the records and they're flipping and things like that. You know, that's an homage to Death Proof. Uh, yeah. By Tarantino, like when before he before Stuntman Mike kills the first set of girls, uh, mm-hmm. he always cuts to the scene of the record player flipping in. You know, it's just like if little, you're a fan of things like that. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're a fan of 90s cinema, <clears throat> like I am like there's so many homages to 90s cinema in You Should Have Killed Me. Homages can be fun for the viewer, you know, too, you know, because I, I feel, you know, like you said, t- I mean, Tarantino, you, you mentioned him with Death Proof, but I mean, that guy is notorious for constantly borrowing shots or lifting shots from other people's films, and he doesn't even hide about it. He's just like, yep, I did that because it's fun for me, and I know people like it, and it's cool. Yeah. I mean, another perfect example is, um, so there's a scene after, I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't seen it. There's mm-hmm. a scene after the uh, kind of the meeting up between the main character and Sully where they're kind of kidnapped by a group. Um, and as soon as it cuts to black, it actually opens up into a gentleman uh, standing back at the lava lounge uh, mm-hmm. where he had first approached him. And he has a coat over his arm and he's kind of looking around like this. Well, yep. that's John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and how that scene came about, is, um, it wasn't even supposed to be there, um, but how that scene came out is that gentleman in that scene is my general manager at KWWL, and he had donated some of his movie or some of his money towards the movie. And I was like, well, what do you want? And he was like, I just want a small cameo. So the idea I came up with was making him the Chicago boss that yeah. he's supposed to meet. And then he kind of walks into the lava lounge like, where is everybody? But like in that motion, yeah. like his coat over his arm, That's it's basically crazy. the John Travolta yeah. kid that everyone knows. You know what I mean? It's so it's so crazy. So like I finished, so I finished watching your movie. I had watched it once, like a good while ago. And as you know, we were trying to get this scheduled for a while, and I kept dogging you and just you know just kicking you down the road. Um, so I revisited your movie today, and and yeah, that's that scene in particular. I've seen Pulp Fiction a million times, and I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. Just like shit. Okay, but now I gotta go. Now I gotta go back and look at that. Um, I have to ask this because you brought this up with Rudy's Tacos. So was that the Rudy's Tacos that's in uh, Cedar Falls? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I recognized it right away because I went to you and I up at school there. And so, yeah, every once in a while we, we would go to, to yeah, Rudy's depending, Tacos. Depending on when you graduated, you might even know <clears throat> the, owner, uh, the owner. I know his name was AJ. I can't remember his last name. Um, I, know, I never got that tight with him. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but, he was a UNI grad too, so. But it was just cool seeing like the Rudy's tacos and being like, oh, like I've, I've, yep, I've been there with people. I know exactly where that's at because that's always a fun thing in movies when you actually recognize uh, yeah, a location like that, on a that set. Whole, that whole movie was filmed in like Waterloo, Cedar Falls. Um, yeah, there's only like one or two sequences that are filmed in Cedar Rapids, but it's like very brief. Most mm-hmm. of that movie just takes place like right in Waterloo. So can you tell me, how did you get, I guess, either permission or, or how did it work to be like, hey, Rudy's Tacos, I know you may not have thought about this before, but I think you're the perfect place for a mob meetup <laughs> towards the end of the film. Uh, honestly, Rudy's has been letting filmmakers in there for like the last four or five years. So that That's wasn't cool. hard. 
Um, Newton's wasn't hard. I literally just called up, talked to the manager. She's like, we're closed on Mondays. It's the only day you got. And I was like, perfect. Right. Um, so really, yeah, any aspiring filmmakers mm-hmm. out there, like if you want to film someplace, just call them and ask them. Uh, you know, just mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, this is what we want to do. Is this okay? This is kind of the amount of time we think we'll be there. And, you know, the worst they're going to say is no, and then you can just ask someone else. Did you at least get to have some tacos for shooting there? Because they have I really did. good food. I did. So uh, going kind of into your, your question where you were like, I want to know where that $5,000 went. Uh, Don't say it was it, all on tacos. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it wasn't all on tacos, but a lot of it was to feeding the cast and crew. Because uh, yeah, yeah. in order for us to do this movie for five grand, uh, we were initially asking for ten with crowdfunding. Um, mm-hmm. Through Indiegogo, we actually only raised thirty, or we actually only raised twenty-eight hundred. Okay. And I got a donation uh, from my mom and uh, her husband for the remainder of the 22 because I knew I could do it for five grand. Um, so once we got that, uh, most of that money, like probably about 1500 bucks, went into buying props, things like that. Uh, but I told the cast and crew, like, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to pay you guys to do this film. So, mm-hmm. like, if you guys are willing to work with me and give me a shot, like when it gets up picked up for distribution, like I will pay you all then. Uh, and so a lot of that money just went into like feeding the cast and crew, you know, yeah. be buying pizza or snacks or treats. Or uh, when we filmed at Rudy's Tacos, I told AJ, the owner who was there, who was closed that day, I said, you know, look, I got to feed these guys no matter what. So mm-hmm. like either you know, you can make us food and I'll give you the money or I'm going to have to order something and bring it in. And he was like, Nope, I got you. So like we ended up eating tacos at Rudy's tacos. So I mean, that's pretty sweet. They, they have really good tacos. So I just, I, I'm bringing it up. Cause I mean, a shout out to Rudy's tacos. Cause if you're an Iowa native, you're around the area there, definitely go check them out. I'm, they're, not, they're, they're not a sponsor of this episode. I'm just saying no, not as a fan all. of the taco place. Not at they all. They, did, they <laughs> did not contribute to my film in any way either, besides letting me film there. And I, I, oddly enough, there's that one part where, you know, Bryce's character, uh, Kevin is like, I love their yellow birds, uh, or, uh, I love their habanero sauce, yellow for life like i literally have that same sauce like right above my desk right now so um yeah um tried to shout out as many waterloo businesses as i could uh plan on doing even more in the next feature length film uh which we have in development right now so one of the other characters I wanted to ask you about, and I, I tried to make the note of, of writing their name down there, is, was Rob Merritt's character, and mm-hmm. I, I think his name was Jeeves. And, Jeeves. and I was curious, because was there any sort of joke in there with being asked Jeeves? Because isn't that like an internet search thing or something like well, that? So, or? so Jeeves is a butler of sorts, right? Uh, okay. Butler of sorts. Um, yeah, because he, he has like a bow tie he, and a bit of an accent. Yeah, so yeah. He, he is a Englishman that cleans houses. Yeah. And if you know anything about the crime world, you know, anyone that cleans a house generally means that they uh, are going to take care of your mess. Uh, yeah. Whether, it's no matter like what, the, the cleaning no matter, people. No matter what that may be, they're going to take care of your mess. Uh, yes. So it's kind of just like a, kind of a joke, or if you will. Where it's kind of like, well, 
we have this situation. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's ask Jeeves, and like he'll take care of it. And that and that's what I thought because I was like, I'm like, okay, that's pretty clever. It's funny, and you know, even the fact too that like he, he quite literally has like a bit of like a a, a serve a servitude uh, persona on there. We're just like, how can I help you know and do that whole thing? Mm-hmm. Um, that was certainly interesting. So I'm glad I wasn't just like you know being crazy and being like, are they doing like a pun on ass Jeeves? Like, what's going on there? Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask you too about, you know, just stories and movies where, a, you know, you think a character is supposed to be dead, but then they're not dead. Right. So I pulled together a short list of, you know, other movies where someone's either been shot in the face, they've been, you know, near death, you know, and they're just like, ah, like they, they should have died. Um, the ones I came up with, the world is not enough was actually the very first thing that came to my head with your character because he has quite literally a bullet that's in his head the entire time and it hasn't come out. Um, but I was just curious, like, did you, do you like other characters in films that, you know, have been shot in the face and they're, they're still alive? Cause there's, there's a ton of revenge thrillers, you know, where it's just like, they, they try to kill him in the beginning, you know, and then of course they come back. Yeah, well, the dilemma I faced was actually turning it from a short film into a feature-length film. Because, like I said, you know, it was supposed to be a proof-of-concept film. Um, And, like, the popular saying with, like, writing a good screenplay is no matter whether it's, like, a secondary character or a primary character, everyone should want something and there should be some type of conflict Mm -hmm. um, that is, like, driving them to that goal, right? And so I need. I knew I needed something to like, you know. It's it's easy for Monty to just be like, solely stole my money. I need my money. Yada yada yada. But when you include like, hey, uh, you know, there's a bullet in your head that's slowly killing you, and you're also your daughter uh, <clears throat> is on a certain allotted time, right. like you need to hurry. And so it kind of is just kind of that way of um, kind of creating drama in the background, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I wasn't sure because, you know, so I also was thinking of like uh, like Jason Statham's character in the Crank movies, you know, like, he, uh, yeah. he, yeah. like yeah. he's so, absolutely someone that so should be you, like dead in yes. the day. So you nailed it spot on. The original script, The Dead Man Walking, the short film, Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just supposed to be a proof of concept was very largely inspired by Crank. Crank's a pretty sweet movie. I, I can't say as much the same for the second one. I think they kind of jumped the shark with that one a bit. But the first one, I still have a great time with because it's a fantastic concept of a movie. It's very simple, very straightforward, and it just ups the ante as it goes on because he has to do all these crazy things to be able to stay alive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the... the having... actually, actually, hold on. I'll, no, you're I'll good. Play this real quick. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Anybody yeah, that's was... anyone that's seen the movie, they'll know exactly. They'll know exactly what that is. <laughs> yeah. I I paid ninety nine cents for that ringtone. That is how good that movie is. I was gonna say that's commitment. You don't, like most people don't pay for ringtones, but yeah, if you're willing to have that, that is that is actually pretty sweet. Um, other people that I had on my list of, they definitely should have been dead, but they didn't is of course the Punisher, right? I mean, and I'm talking specifically the Thomas Jane one. I mean, I know John Bernthal gets shot in a lot of the Netflix ones, but yeah, no, the first one was great. I love it. 
Yeah. And Travolta also, you know, we brought up him earlier in that his his death scene in that I always kind of cracks me up with him kind of pathetically getting dragged behind the car and he's like, oh, yeah, so great. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what, what are other revenge movies that you like? I mean, like, because I just I can't help but be inspired to talk about that with this movie being so revenge heavy. Oh, man. Like, I, I, I might have to think about it. Um I mean, honestly, the sad truth is, is I, like, I don't actually watch a whole lot of film as much as I should. Well, probably because you're busy making them. <laughs> well, there's there is that, <laughs> but uh, I'm also like a huge history buff. So, like, you know, I mm. talked about my coworker, um, you know, Tyler earlier. You know, he'll he'll come back and be like, "Hey, I watched Asteroid City last night." I'll be like, "Yeah." I'll be like, I saw it was on Peacock, streaming only. And he'll be like, yeah, did you watch it yet? I'll be like, no, I watched the the same World War One documentary about the Battle of the Somme for, like, the fifth time. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. I'm just, like, I'm a huge history buff, like, uh, especially military history, things like that. Now, does uh, that just come from you? Because you said that you had served in the military. Does that come from that? Or no, just, it, that, like, that's, before that? That's, yeah, that's always been there. I've just always been, like, a big history buff guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like when I was 13 years old, I could, I could tell you what year they introduced horses to the island of Japan. Like, it's oh, like, I just calling you I, up next time I got trivia on that. Geography and history. I got you on, but if it's anything like if we're going to like trivia crack stuff, like don't uh, ask yeah. me about sports. Don't ask me about science. <laughs> don't ask me about any of that stuff. It's history and geography. But, Can you do movie trivia though? Like what about that? Even then, so like, so I, I jokingly say this all the time. Um, Tyler, my coworker, is kind of like my casting director, if you will, mm. um, which I've made several jokes on about, like, you know, if I was doing a big Hollywood feature, I'd have to have him as my casting director because, like, he'll be like, oh, did you see so-and-so in this movie? And I'll be like, I don't, I don't know who that is. He'll be like, you don't know who that is? And then he'll, like, have to <laughs> rattle off ten films, and I'll be like, yeah. oh, it's that person. Like, <laughs> I'm just really bad with, like, names and watching movies and things like that. Uh, I need to get better, but, yeah. Now, let me ask you a fun question here. So let's say somebody comes and contacts you, I don't know, they're from Warner Brothers or Paramount or something, and they're just like, hey, we got a fat check with your name on it. We're going to let you make a movie about history. Anything that you want, what would it be? It would be a feature-length script I'm currently working on called Roar, which is about the Roaring Twenties. And it would basically be a... Um, another look at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Now, brush me up on that one because it does ring a bell. My Now, my, I'll give you what I think it is, which I can almost promise you I'm wrong, so be gentle. Uh, but isn't that, like, related to, like, some sort of, like, a mob killing or something like that where, like, yeah, a bunch of so, people got shot in front of a store or something? I, I don't well, know so exactly it, yeah, the details. So in Prohibition so Days... Um, most believe that Capone ordered the hit, although he never actually fessed up to it. Uh, but basically, these fake police officers showed up to this like automotive garage slash like mm-hmm. warehouse. Um, said that they were the police, lined up like seven dudes against a wall, and just mowed them down with Tommy guns. Uh, no one was ever caught. Uh, it's still unsolved to this day. 
but what always fascinated with me, which is what my script is about, is that one of those guys that was lined up against the wall and killed uh, had no uh, criminal connections whatsoever. Um, he's really? actually a German optometrist. Um, and he, I, the, the theory goes is that he thought by hanging out with gangsters, it just made him look cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the reason why he did it and talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but like, so my, my whole thought process was, was like, well, what was that guy's life about? You know, like, was he dating anyone? Was he engaged? Mm -hmm. Was he married? Did he have any kids? Uh, so Roar is kind of a, a standpoint where that German optometrist that just happened to be one of those unlucky guys uh, is kind of his life looking in on the mob. Sure, sure. And so I've been working on it for a while, and the only reason I haven't really seriously pulled the trigger on it is because obviously if you want to shoot a movie in Chicago in the 1920s, it's going to take a massive budget. So yeah, uh, yeah we, we just I just I'm waiting until someone is like, yeah, you know, we'll give you twenty million dollars to do that. So, <laughs> is uh, it is it difficult at that point in a twenty four if if you guys want to hit me up, go for it. So. I, was like, I mean, that's that's the dream. And, hey, you never know. Someone could be listening. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to look into it. And then before you know it, it happens. So, hey, I never say never. But I wanted I to ask you just on the subject of budgets because we've talked about that a couple of times off and on throughout this. Is it ever difficult, you know, trying to get a range of how much something's going to cost? Or do you just figure it out once you start really doing the prep work and kind of getting everything all in a list, basically? Because I, I, I don't. You know, it's not like you can always hire somebody to do that for you. Yeah, I think the uh, best pros and I, I, I mean, there's pros and cons to that in, in itself. But I think I'm kind of the person that's like, let's just get on with it and I'll figure it out afterwards. Right. Um, so I've never like not been able to afford something that the film needed up to this date. I mean, obviously, with the agreement that I would pay my cast and crew afterwards. Sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm kind of just like, hey, let's just pull the trigger on this thing. Let's get going. And if a problem arises, we'll figure it out then. Uh, one of my I mean, one of my favorite sayings is filmmaking itself is 90 percent troubleshooting. Um, I don't Very know. If true. I, I don't know if I've ever been on a set where like things go 100 percent to plan. Um, and so, yeah. like, you just have to be willing to, like, you know, adapt, overcome, and imp or improvise, adapt, and overcome. Yeah. Um, going <clears throat> back to my first, my favorite revenge movie. Yeah. Um, the one that came to mind is I'm going to say The Patriot. Ooh, it's a good choice. It's a very good choice. Now, like I said, I'm a history buff. I understand I, there is nothing yeah. historically accurate about this movie. <laughs> but it's true. It is a yeah. fucking great movie. I I would have when to agree with when you. When Heath Ledger is dying and Bell Gibson. So here's yeah. what I so here's what I okay, so this goes back to my filmmaking standpoint a little bit, right? Yep. Generally what filmmakers do is if there's like a really tight shot on their talent, um, they'll use a longer vocal lens to give them a little bit of room to breathe. But I can't remember who directed The Patriot, but what uh, he did Roland was, Emmerich. Yeah, so what Roland did was he goes, I want to be up close on Mel, like, the entire time. Yeah. So the camera was, like, right in front of his face. So when he's like, Gabriel, please don't. Please don't go. 
please don't go. And he starts bawling. Uh, camera yeah, is I'm, like I'm, 10 inches <clears throat> from its face. Yeah. And so, like, yes, you could say, like, well, you like that movie because of Mel Gibson's performance. It's like, well, yeah. You know, sure. up until he went a little, you know, I don't even want to say he went crazy, but like, up until I've, he went I've, I've been a supporter of Mel. I mean, yeah, I know, so I know I, he's I'm had kind of his in, bouts. I'm kind of in the same boat. So, like, yeah. up until, you know, he kind of lost public favor, like, Mel Gibson's probably by far one of the best fucking actors I've ever seen in my entire life. And, uh, yeah, so, like, that scene, you know, Heath Ledger's laying there, he passes away, and, like, he's just like, Gabriel, please don't. Please, please don't. Please, please don't. Like, me as a father, I'm just, like, immediately, like, 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 literally thinking about that scene, (laughs) I get, I get chills when I think about that scene, because that, I think, was one of the first times, and I've, I've always known Mel Gibson was a good actor and whatnot before that movie, um, but in that particular scene, because I know exactly the scene you're talking about, the way that he is able to convey like both the shock of losing his son and the reality of yeah, it and just everything. And the grief. It's yeah. It's like a three-stage process. It's like the shock. Yeah. Like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah. You're going to be okay. And then it's yeah. just like. And then oh, it's no. like the, the horror oh, no. realization oh, no. of it. Oh, no. And then it's yeah. just like when he just breaks down in tears. Like It's. Yeah, there. I mean, it is by far a masterclass of like yeah. how to cry on camera. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, it's a it's a weird kind of claim the fame I could say for him, but I mean, Mel Gibson is the king of doing grief on camera. I mean, he knows how to do it. Another another movie that he doesn't <laughs> get he doesn't get enough credit for, and it was it was kind of slowly after his hiatus um, that he had with, as you said, with Hollywood and whatnot. But Edge of Darkness. Um, that was kind of like his initial kind of comeback movie, but when his daughter, spoiler alert, has been out for a while, gets shotgun blasted in that movie, he has, I mean, it's not, not comparing to the Patriot, but he has a, a very, a, a very harsh scene where he has to like hold her and she's dead. And it's, it's, it's very gruesome. It's very intense. And, and Mel is just, I mean, he's the man. He He knows how to do that better than a lot of people and he can make it really believable. I, I wish I could speak to it better, but I'm so glad you brought that up. The only, the only other part that makes me cry just as hard as that is probably, uh, in Armageddon when <laughs> yeah. shoves Ben Affleck back into the fucking spaceship. And it's like, yeah, you take care of my Gracie now. Or, yeah. He's like, he's like, he's like you, t- you give this patch to Truman. Yeah. Yeah. Like, give I'm, it to I'm Truman. Out. Shoves him in there. <laughs> He's yeah. like, Harry, what are you doing? He's like, I always thought of you as a son. Ah, fuck, yeah. It's your, yep. it's your job to take care of Gracie now. And then he pushes the button. Ben Affleck starts going up. And he's like, Harry, no, I love you. I love you. Oh, God. <laughs> like, the whole time, I'm like, say what you want about yeah. Michael Bay. That was a fantastic movie. People and and I know like it's it's definitely internet legend now to go back and listen to the commentary of Ben Affleck ripping on Armageddon. If you haven't uh, heard that by the way it's it is hysterical but damn it like you said the end of that scene yeah i mean it, it's it's super effective and i actually i don't know i'm i'm a person that stands by armageddon i know it has problems and whatnot but it is a really fun movie and it has a fucking stacked cast a yeah, stacked I don't know. armageddon cast. is like one of those movies to me that it's like there used to be a time in cinema and I even say that now as a filmmaker, 
there used to I, like like I said, I don't know if it's because I'm older now and like I just don't see like the magic behind cinema as much anymore. But there used to be a a time in cinema or like going to see a movie that like when you went to see a movie, you were just like, Oh my gosh, like yeah. this is incredible. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing. Like yeah. like when you went to go see a movie, you were like, This is amazing. Yeah. And like nowadays it's like you go to the cinema and you're like, that's eh, all right. Or you know, it's like and like I'm not gonna shit on Marvel movies by being like all green screen or something like that, but it's like right. I just feel like you lose that like magic. Like like I like I say this all the time, it's like I think what separates Steven Spielberg from like a lot of other directors is like when you're watching a Steven Spielberg movie, you mm-hmm. know it's a Steven Spielberg movie. Sure. The, light, the lighting is his, the cinematography is his, and it just looks like one of those movies of old that like still holds that like cinematic mm-hmm. magic. Yeah. Like, I, when, I, when I watched The Fablemans, <clears throat> I was like, this movie is fucking incredible. Like, it that, just looks so good, and just like the acting is great. And, yeah. Well, if anything, it helps you appreciate filmmakers of his generation in particular, because not to say that people that are coming up now, you know, don't have to work hard. I mean, they, they certainly do. There's a lot of challenges to get a movie made. But you look at the time in The Fablemans, and of course, that's, you know, loosely based on Steven Spielberg's own life. I, you know, he, he movies aren't even hardly an industry like to, to get taken seriously with back then, especially as him being a kid in Arizona. Like it, it's a completely different time to come up and make movies and even be taken seriously for it. So I think for any aspiring filmmaker, there's a lot of messages in that movie where I got oh, shit. I've been there. I get that. Yeah. Watching the watching the Fablemans was a, a very hard movie to watch for me. Once again, I really enjoyed it. I, I really liked it. Uh, it just hit really, really close to home. Uh, mm. Like my parents are divorced. Uh, my mom cheated on my dad, and uh, like watching that everything play out, and then also with like me wanting to be a filmmaker and like watching his story, it just it hit very close to home. Uh, I definitely found myself being like, "Wow, I can." fully relate to what you're going through right now the thing uh, sorry go ahead no yeah yeah yeah. that was that was about it the thing i I was gonna say that just tying back to something you said earlier because i i i think you you brought up an excellent point in that you're like you know sometimes it can feel tough to feel that magic of of the movies you know that we maybe remember from you maybe it's not necessarily a magic but it's just like right and like i said maybe it's because i'm older now but like maybe it's like when you're younger or something this happens but like movies used to look totally different to me than they do now well sure you're i mean like like i said like i'm not even i'm I'm excluding me being a filmmaker and things like that right but it's like i go to a blockbuster now and i'm just kind of like oh yeah it's a movie but like back in the day it's like when you went to a movie it was like holy fuck this is a big fucking deal this is great this is fantastic i have a i have a theory I have a theory on okay. why that could be. Now, of course, you are uniquely you. I cannot speak for your mind and your experiences and everything like that. But I think that because of the flood of technology and information that we receive and we're inundated with constantly, like I was talking with somebody about this, 
kind of unrelated, but the average person I've read somewhere like spends these days like 15 hours in front of a screen, like a day, right? Now, you take that, put it back to other generations beforehand. It's not that they didn't work on computers and things like that, but they just weren't fucking hit with it all the time. You know, constantly being pulled in a million different directions, whether it be social media, the streaming platforms and the fucking huge amount of content, not to mention YouTube. You you could just lose yourself on platforms like that. So I think there's like this weird desensitization thing that can happen where people just they just see and overload their senses with so many different things that I think they become kind of numb to it if they do it too much. I think that's where God, I think that's where some of it has to come from. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah. It's um so so I think it can be challenging though because I mean really that's where the love I think of movies can stem from those because we want to feel that that pure escapist feeling that we hearken back to whether it's in the past or it's in a great movie like you said, a Spielberg one where like it just has that air about it that's what we're always chasing yeah because i mean even as a kid you know like you go you know you'd be sitting in the theaters you'd be watching the previews right you got your popcorn soda all the lights die down and then you just have that like you know like sony digital surround sound and all of a sudden it'd be like (laughs) yeah like your seats would fucking rumble and you're like oh my god (laughs) it's just like yeah it's just like I don't know, man. Like, I just feel like that magic is fucking gone, you know? Well, I think the closest we can get to recapturing the magic, if a person's ever trying to, not that they pay for this uh, podcast, but IMAX. I mean, oh, yeah. IMAX can still do that for me sometimes. Like, I saw, I'm trying to think, I saw, like, the new Avatar movie on that. I mean, of course, that's, like, a visual sense overload on that. Um, but there's a, there's a handful of movies on IMAX that can still do that to me because they have even better sound quality than your regular theaters. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to hear my input on Avatar. I think James, I think James Cameron (laughs) is brilliant. Uh, but the first Avatar is just Pocahontas with aliens. Sure. And then the second Avatar is why do you need like an hour and a half of like a teen drama in the middle of them? not fitting in with their new friends it's like just get on with the story <laughs> i don't give a fuck about your stupid kids like, oh so and so doesn't like me they're bullying me it's like who gives yeah a shit? the, the soap opera war. this is the most expensive soap opera that i've yeah, ever exactly. seen it's like you guys are at war who gives a shit one thing okay I'll, I'll give you a hot take on Avatar. So, I mean, first off, I'll say... Once again, I, I, keep in mind, I didn't critique it visually, because visually it's a masterpiece, but, like... Right. <clears throat> I'm talking I mean, about I, the story. I get you. One thing I'm kind of curious about, and, and I don't know if it's a flaw or if it's just the fact that I know Avatar, the new ones, they're part of... You know, they have, like, five movies that are coming out and whatnot, so they have all this story that I haven't seen yet. But I'd always find it interesting that in the second one, you know, he starts off being like, I got to get my kids away. You know, we got to just run away from everything, go to the beach and we'll, we'll, just, stay, we'll just stay there. Not, like he's, he's Doc Mon, whatever they fucking Yeah, the, the, uh, Taru Makto or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> he's not going to run. And then two, like all of a sudden you're going to spring, spring this theory that the general had an avatar clone out of nowhere. Like get out of here. Well, the thing I was, the thing I was trying to say it about took the... 10 years to come up with that <laughs> fucking garbage. Come on. 
Well, I didn't. What I didn't understand is that at like, like by the end of it, you know, he basically has the realization that he's like, okay, I gotta, you know, we gotta go to war now. I'm like, that wasn't apparent before. Yeah. Like, like they're here. Like, I, like you, the planet's yes. only so big. Where are you gonna run? Yeah, I can't that remember. Would... I think it's in the first movie they say Pandora is like slightly bigger than Earth, maybe, or slightly bigger than the oh, moon. That... I can't remember which one. Really? But even if, so, if it's slightly mm-hmm. bigger than the moon, it's still not the same size as Earth. Like, obviously, yeah, they're going to catch up to you. Right. I think my my take on the Avatar movies is, I mean, I can't argue against some of the story beads either being extremely derivative, you know, borrowed from Native American stories and whatnot. Um, but I think Cameron is a technical genius for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. For and sure. Like, and I, I mean, love his if, world building that he does watch, with the creatures. Yeah. And if you watch, um, you know, mm-hmm. YouTube channels like Corridor Crew Digital and things like that, like oh, yeah. they talk about how James Cameron has like revolutionized like the yeah. art of CG or like digital filmmaking because yeah. like kind of the same way with like George Lucas when he made Star Wars in like the late seventies, like he had to invent a lot of the technology in order yep. to make that film. And same thing with like James Cameron making the Avatar movies is he had to invent a lot of technology to make those movies, which yes. then trickles down to all of the other creatives. So don't get me wrong. I don't think James Cameron's a bad filmmaker. Right. And I think he's fantastic. However, and like I said, the, both the Avatar movies, whether they're 10 years apart or not, they look fantastic. I'm yeah. just kind of like, it's it's kind of like, so like what they did to Soli in Avatar 2 is kind of like what they did to Luke Skywalker. Like, they just mm. made him a bitch. <laughs> it's just like, so like, you know, Skywalker comes back, you know, everyone's losing their shit. They're like, oh my God, Mark Hammond's back. It's going to be fucking yeah. incredible. And yeah. he's just like, I don't fight anymore. Yeah, a, he drinks I, alien, I, alien tit milk on, on, yeah, the, on alien his island. Tit milk. I, I, I don't believe in the forest. The last time I believed in the forest, it got people killed. It's like, that's not Luke Skywalker. There's like, a there's a whole thread. I, I'm trying to think it's... Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's been several YouTube people and probably podcasters that have talked about it, but there's this whole like cliche now of big uh ip properties that people are familiar with that get brought back uh get brought back for like a a legacy sequel and they always have to make like the person that was you know a real optimist like you know the real great hero protagonist now we got to make them all old and miserable now because because they do that with you know indiana jones in the new one he he's he hates his life basically (laughs) lives in a one-bedroom shithole in new york (laughs) um you know i I don't know, and like even Han Solo in those movies, they kind of did him dirty too, because yeah, he, he doesn't he I doesn't even really change so, as a character. He I just, was so mad when he died. Yeah. I mean, okay, but that's that's the point. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, it was the same thing they did to like Jake Sully in Avatar Two. It was just kind of like I'm a bitch now. I have a family, <laughs> so I can't be brave. It's like okay, do you want to do you want do you want to talk to me as a parent for a second? It's like if someone comes into my house threatening my family, I'm gonna fuck them up. Right. Like, I'm just saying that's what I'm gonna do. Right. And it's just like you know. You're not gonna try to take the kids on a plane and go to the beach and be like, "We'll we'll figure it out here." Yeah. No. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. You got any final thoughts before we we wrap this up? I you got the little ones at home. I don't want to keep you all night. Oh no, you're good, man. Uh, yeah, my wife and I do the a thing that's called our night uh, oh. uh, to keep our, our sanity. So you, uh, you need that. Yes. 
Yeah, so uh, like once a week, she'll take her night. She'll go out, do whatever she wants with the ladies or uh, yep. whatever it may be. And so tonight, I just claimed my night. So nice. I, technically, when, whenever we get done here, like I'm going to go grab a drink with a buddy of mine. Nice. Uh, so like I have all the time in the world. Like you can keep doing what you're doing, or if you want to end it at like an hour and a half, that's fine with me. So that's I think that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Um, my, my wife, she she's always patient when I'm podcasting, but she she's in the other room. I probably need to probably have saw, have food with her. Door open. Do you one see the door open at one point? Yeah, that 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 would be her. She's she's hiding in the back. I, I will say, because you brought up the wives earlier, and I, I think we can, we'll end on this, but then I'll also, of course, get your plugs in there so you can tell people where to find the movie and all that good stuff. But having the wife support when you're doing this sort of thing is is very important because, let's face it, you know, unless you get really lucky in, you know, filmmaking business and whatnot, you're not going to make money doing this right away. You know, th- th- this is a starving artist type of thing where like, you know, you got to, you know, really find the right people to work with partner with. It takes a lot of people to make a movie and having support on the home front, whether they're like creatively on the same page with you or not, like just the fact that, you know, she's letting you do this, you know, my wife, she's letting me talk to you and, you know, do all this stuff. I mean, I I try not to take that for granted because it it would be harder some days if I didn't have her being like, you know, proud of what you're doing honey like you know it's a good thing that you're doing this so you know shout out to the wives because they they help out a lot yeah like i said my my wife is like she's not one of those people that's gonna share a bunch of stuff on social media or come to my movie premieres or like bow down and like worship the ground i walk on you know it's just like she's doing stuff that people don't see you know like she's she's at home watching the kids she's uh, you know, like I had to take almost two weeks of vacation time last summer to shoot. You should have killed me. And when I was on set, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day, like she was home with our kids. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like there's there's a lot of stuff that you don't see. So even though she might not be right out in like the public eye being like, I support my husband. His film's great. Right. Check it out. It's like, no, she's doing other things to help me do what I want to do. So I got you. So you should have killed me. I know you said you got a distributor for it and whatnot. I think I saw, excuse me. I think I saw that people can, they can rent it on Amazon, I think. And I think there's a Blu-ray for it too. Um, There's a couple different ways that people can watch it. Yeah. So streaming wise, um, it's on Amazon Tubi, IndieBox, Voodoo Fandango, as of right now, I think there might be more coming, uh, but then you can basically get it on Blu-ray everywhere, and that includes like Amazon, like you said, Best Buy, Wa- uh, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, um, various third-party like Blu-ray DVD retailers. Uh, you can buy it from. Well, I got I got I got to ask about the Blu-ray because so here I'll turn my camera here so you can see. So you see, I got a big shelf full. Yes. A physical media right there so i love and advocate for physical media i i probably don't do it enough on my podcast but uh what was it like getting this to actually get a physical release uh surreal um i got one sent to me and uh as soon as i opened it like it just didn't i don't know it's just uh like it didn't feel like it was my movie almost right um 
like I saw it, I opened it, I saw the disc, I, I played it, I saw the menu, you know, everything like that. And it was just kind of like, nah, like this, right. is, like <laughs> this feels like some 99 cent movie I picked up from the world's <laughs> largest truck stop off I-80, you know, like. <laughs> it's just like it didn't feel like mine and yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's very surreal so like it's a good feeling but then at the same time you're kind of like once again going back to like imposter syndrome and stuff like that you're just kind of like do i really this like is my movie actually that good but do you think it matters that it is available on physical because you know with so so many things shifting digitally you know some people i mean you gotta fight for it well yes and no for both because like like i said Mm -hmm. like the team of people that helped me make this movie did it for free, you know, with the understanding sure. that like I would pay them once we got it picked up for distribution. And so like, you know, any amount of help, any, um, you know, whether it be physical <clears throat> copy or streaming, like anything helps. And like yeah. all that, like I've never paid myself for any movie I've ever made. So right. like literally the first, you know, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 is all going back to the cast and crew. I'm not even paying myself. Sure. So, like, it, it's important to me because I want to pay back the people that helped me because it's kind of like a help me help you thing. You know, it's like, sure. If you're willing to work with me for free, you know, like when I do get that $20 million budget from A24, like, who do you think I'm calling up? I'm exactly. calling up yeah. the people that I can trust and that have worked with me and have done a good job before. Yeah. So I think, I think people sometimes, I mean, they, they maybe understand this maybe in other lines of work, but it's certainly I feel even more prevalent in entertainment is it's such a relationship based economy. And you know? I mean, I've said this so many times about the Iowa filmmaking scene. The Iowa filmmaking scene that we have is great. Yeah. And not to create too much controversy. Like, yes, mm-hmm. there are some names out there that I could be like, these guys are selfish motherfuckers. They're only looking out for themselves, you know, whatever right. it may be. But for the most part, the the Iowa filmmaking scene are more than willing to help each other out. And mm-hmm. it goes with like the popular saying, you know, like rising tides lift all boats. And that's what I'm about. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I might be one of the first filmmakers in the state to get picked up, you know, for distribution in a few years, you know, um, things like that. But with that being said, like, you know, the, the success of this is going to give me more opportunities to create um, content in the state that's going to give more opportunities for people around me to be able to be involved and mm-hmm. get their, you know, get involved in the project. Those projects that we make in the future are going to get more eyes on them. And like sure. I said, it's just mm-hmm. going to, it's going to bring the entire state up as a whole. And mm-hmm. that's literally what I'm all about. Like, I don't care about fame and fortune. Right. Um, it makes me super uncomfortable still to this day when people actually recognize me out in public. I don't like it. Has it happened uh, a lot? Like, I mean, like, have you had uh, a few times where like, they're like, Hey, I would say, I would say over five, but not more than 10 since my movie came out on Bayview. People okay. have been like, Oh, you're Michael. You're that filmmaking guy. And uh, it's like, right. you'll fucking like, I just don't like it. Like I'm a very private person. Um, you wouldn't believe it with like how I'm doing on the podcast and just chat my fucking brain (laughs) off. But, um, like if I'm out to eat with my Mm -hmm. wife, like I want to just be out to eat and focus on her. Like, I don't want people coming up to me and being like, Hey, you're that filmmaker guy. It's like, yes, I'm the fucking filmmaker guy. Right. Like, so it's just kind of like, like, I don't like it. My goal is just to like, I want to bring back like the Iowa filmmaking, um, of old, you know, like 
tax breaks for filmmakers, more incentive to film here. I want mm -hmm. the state to get uh, involved and behind Iowa filmmakers. Like, I just want to be able to do what I love where it doesn't cost me like an arm and a leg and things like that. You know what I mean? I would like some like yeah. state representation or some state incentives. Like, you know, we're not the generation of like the nineties and the early two thousands. that was like embezzling money. You know, this is like, you know, it's 22 years later. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we're, it's a new generation. It's a new breed, you know, uh, give Iowa filmmakers a chance again, you know, like, yeah. Give, give us a shot to like actually make some big fucking things here and like actually bring yeah. talent and bigger agencies back to our state. You know, I know I'm, you know, I, I'm not probably as accustomed to the Iowa film scene as you are with how steep you've been into it, just with the making of this movie, with the other stuff that you've worked on and whatnot. But you know, I've been to a handful of festivals this year, and I've been able to meet some fantastic people. I was gonna say um, you've been making rounds, man. I've been watching you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I also got to give a shout out to 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 Mediaverse Mediaverse Studios out in Marengo, Iowa, on there because I know I think you had talked about them at one point, and I know that uh, Jake, uh, uh, what, goddamn it, though, I know Jake, and then the the other guy who did your your camera work, Jake Fuck. Daniels and Michael Huntington. And yeah, Michael, sorry, but Jesus, I I know who you are. I, he's if he listens to this, he'll think I'm a dick, but it's <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Cut the cut the part out where I told you his name, and just let me be like, "Wait, Michael? Who? Michael Huntington? Yeah, yeah who is play it? around with him in the edit. We'll, we'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Who is that guy? Michael Huntington? I've heard he's a real douchebag. <laughs> but like those those guys to me, like and and that whole team out there and what they're doing, um, That's tremendous. I I think I think it's tremendous what they're doing, and from what I can tell, just from when I see them. I mean, they're the real deal. Like they're they're plugging away. They are putting their heart and soul into a lot of the content they're putting out. They're make they're doing a ton of rounds with the uh, forty eight hour film festivals and whatnot. Um, they have their uh, their open house here. I know soon. They, I know they have that publicly out there. Yeah, and whatnot. I'll be there. Are you plan on going to it? Yep, yep. I'm planning yeah, on being there too. Yeah, so okay. I definitely so. see you there as well. But. Um, there are some really great people there, and I love the analogy you use of the all tide lifting boats because that's something I think I feel when I continue to be a part of it with the podcast is that, you know, me giving a, a spotlight to a filmmaker here, it's it's only going to benefit me and them. I mean, like, there's not really a, a downside to this. And anything I can do in my own part to lift that stigma from Iowa of being like, oh, like the place with the corn and you know, some shit like no, well, like we, are, we actually you, have a creative community here and yeah, it's rising. Well, well, you really are like the the podcast voice, at least in the state, as far as filmmaking is concerned. Right. So like, you know, Century Films had Indie Social, which is no longer right. And right. Yes, you could mm -hmm. argue but that that's now Media versus Podcast. But Media versus Podcast only really started, you know, a yeah. month ago. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the big one at the time for, you know, Iowa talent was like um, Cinematic Heartland. Heartland yeah. And yeah. Darren and Kevin and Michael aren't doing that anymore. Uh, Kevin's uh, had an opportunity, which I won't disclose because I don't know if he wants yeah. me to. Uh, sure. But he's stepping down from that for at least a year, if not more. Right. Uh, so, like, you're kind of really the only voice we have left in the state. So, I mean, you're... You're, you're once again like what you said like you know i think i was just lucky 
to be in the right place at the right time. Like I'm telling you right now as a filmmaker for like what you do, you are absolutely in the right place at the right time for like what we need to get our voice out there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate hearing that because, uh, you know, you know, sometimes I don't have to tell you as a person that does this stuff, you don't always need other people's validation. I mean, I'm going to do this with or without an audience, you know, like I, I'll do it because I love it. But it does count for some, you know, for some worth to know that, yeah, there, there's people that are paying attention to this sort of thing and it is actually going to help others. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, like that's that's what you always want. You, you want your work to actually mean something and do something for people. And if it can do something for the creatives that are in this community um, that I've been a part of virtually my whole life, I mean, that's yeah, that's pretty much what it's all about. How do, how do we want to end this? Final words, sir. Just uh, see you later. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that works. See ya. Okay. Strauss, you, bitches. I'm out. All right. Peace.